try not to say no. Um, that's my thing. And I'm not saying don't say boundaries. I'm just saying like, how do we say this in a yes way? Write a script for yourself and post it note it there. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Hovington and I am your host. I am the founder of Curious Neuron, which is a scientifically backed parenting resource. And I am the co-founder of Wondergrade, which is an app that helps you and your child develop emotion regulation skills. Um, you can follow Curious Neuron on Instagram at Curious underscore Neuron and Wondergrade on Instagram as well at Wondergrade. Today's episode, we are talking about behavior and discipline and emotions and everything put together. I don't think that we can talk about this enough. <laughs> I think we could talk about it every week and still have lots of questions and still have many challenges when it comes to parenting our children. So that is why I try to bring that up a lot and speak to different experts and speak to, you know, as many researchers as I possibly can or clinicians so that I can get you the answers that will help you in your home. And um, before we begin, I do want to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute here at the Neuro in Montreal for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. I'm so grateful for the support that we are getting and that we both have the same mission of, of putting science out there. Um, my, my goal, obviously, is to put it out there for parents because I do believe that you all deserve to have access to science and to use it to inform how you are parenting your child. If you are enjoying the Curious Neuron podcast, please take a moment to rate it on iTunes and to subscribe and to leave a rating. If you do leave a rating and a review, please send me an email at info at and I will send you a free PDF of our Meltdown Mountain, which will help you and your child um, when they're having big emotions. There are some printables and some guidance there for you as parents. And I would love to share that with you for free. It's from our Kirsten Academy that is on our website. By the way, speaking of our website, you can visit it at kirsten.com. You can get lots of blog posts there and you can also join a research study. There's a section there and lots to learn. So so I hope you enjoy the website. Let me introduce you to today's guest. Dr. Chen Chiang holds a doctorate in clinical psychology from the PGSP Stanford Psychology Department Consortium and a master's in education from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She is currently completing her postdoctoral fellowship at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital uh, Medical Center and will soon be uh, transitioning into her new role as an assistant professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Chiang specializes in the diagnostic evaluation and treatment of young children and is passionate about supporting families from diverse backgrounds. In her free time, she shares tidbits on child development and mental health through her Instagram account at Parenting the Unexpected. You can follow her on Instagram and all the links will be in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I will see you on the other side. Hi, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. I love chatting with you. We've done it before and yeah. we're going to talk again about behavior. That is what um, I think we, there's lots of good information on your on your Instagram feed, but behavior and challenging behavior and when to seek a professional or a therapist is something I think you 
constantly bring up and we learn a lot from you. So <laughs> I, I posted on my Instagram, you know, what are the most challenging behaviors? And I'm going to go through the list and then we'll bring it up. We'll bring it back at some point. But the most common ones were biting, hitting, uh, yelling and throwing. And I just think back to to like my own kids <laughs> and they all go through it. And I think sometimes as parents, we feel like we've done something wrong. And yeah. it's just it could be part of what happens. But on the other end, I know as a parent, I was always questioning like, at what point should I see somebody? So how about we begin right. by understanding, like, be, what do you look for or, or what is like a behavior that to you stands out? Yeah, well, like you were saying, like tantrums can be, I see all this as part of a tantrum, right? Like a behavioral outburst and they're normal part of development. Most kids go through it. Some have little short bursts of one here and then others have longer ones or more frequent ones. Um, So not every kid who has a tantrum needs help, but I do think about like, if you feel like you're walking on eggshells, if you feel like, okay, I'm changing my daily life, I can't go to the grocery store, like bedtimes are getting drawn out. If you feel like you're changing your life for some reason for these tantrums, um, and it's becoming more and more common, I'd say that's the time to go seek help. Um, And do you wait? Do you wait? to Like, how long would you wait to to decide this? Or is it because maybe parents also thinking, do they grow out of it? What if the child's only two and, and it's disrupting your life, is yeah. it still a time to go see somebody or do you wait? Like, Yeah, yeah um, I think a lot of the times when it comes to like seeing a therapist, we feel like there needs to be, because often they're like in clinics or in hospitals, we think there must be a diagnosis, right? Like my child needs to have that much, you know, uh, disruptive behaviors where they're getting a diagnosis around it to get help. And I just say like, even if you have something little, if you have a stomach ache and if you just knew what to do to make it go away, why not do it? And I think the same thing comes to tantrums. Like you don't need to, there's this impression I think we get from the adult mental health world. Um, and with adult psychologists that like, you know, or the movies that when you see a therapist, it's like a long extended period of time. But with child psychology, you really don't have to do that. Um, you can go in, get, I've seen families for two to three times, really help them get back, um, get some tools in their toolbox and get back on to the routine and track that they want to be. And then I never see them again, which is great. Um, and so <laughs> I just say like, if getting professional help just a few times can make a difference, go for it. It doesn't matter if your child has a diagnosis, just get those tools to make sure that you don't feel the stress of ha- of not knowing what to do when they're biting or throwing or yelling or mm-hmm. kicking. I guess that brings up the the question, like, what are you doing or what, what can a parent expect in the office, right? Like, again, mm-hmm. I think you're right in, on the point that we might think you know, you only go when something's wrong or there's a diagnosis or you're going to get a diagnosis, but it's more than that. You guys, from what you just said, there's some parenting advice that falls around behavior and maybe things that we can be doing or changing in the environment that would actually make a difference in our child's behavior. Yeah. I'm assuming from what you said. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's many different ways of targeting it. Um, There's the more traditional way. Um, Usually when those tantrums are happening with other behaviors that makes um, people uh, confused. And so that might look like, you know, not having those social interactions that um, kids typically would uh, be having or hyperactivity, impulsivity. So what I'm talking about is like going to get an evaluation for autism or ADHD and behaviors are part of the picture. Now that's a drawn out process, right? That's hours you go in, kind of share kind of the developmental history, your concerns, and then hours of testing. And then you wait a few weeks and you get a report. That's one route to do it. 
Um, some some therapists have um, like really set kind of courses that they take families through to help kids um, learn to manage their feelings, um, help parents learn how to manage tantrums, help kids learn to comply. Learning to listen mm-hmm. is a skill. And so that kind of gets bundled in. And those usually look like you know, three months of uh, uh, three to four months of kind of therapy. And um, those are like a package deal. And you kind of go in and there's and you just get that course of treatment. Um, and then there are things now that are popping up in more of the primary care settings, for example, with your pediatrician um, that they have a psychologist on site. And you can um, in some of these clinics just be able to see them for a couple of consult sessions and they'll let you know, hey, I'm actually concerned for other diagnosis or possible whatever, and you get pushed, you know, recommended that way, or uh, they kind of help you with managing whatever you're dealing with in a very short term treatment approach. And then you're out in a couple of weeks. So so good to know that that support is there. I I wonder if I don't know, there's a few parents I've spoken with that felt they didn't get that support from their pediatrician. So I wonder if all the pediatricians are aware of <laughs> that work. You know, sometimes there's a disconnect. <laughs> yeah, no, um, it's not available everywhere, um, unfortunately. Oh, and actually, that's a huge part of I took a recent position um, at University of California, San Francisco. And that's actually part of my job. A big portion of my job is to help pediatricians incorporate behavioral health um, for families. And so that is like where psychology is really pushing um, to make it more accessible to families because it shouldn't be like this really hard six month way to get in. And then you get have to be seen, you know, for the certain amount of time and then you don't get access to them. It's, we don't want those limitations. We want this information to be more accessible. Um, and so I would just ask around to see if any clinics that, um, in your area, if you're looking for one, have that kind of integrated behavioral health or a psychologist in the primary care setting, but it's becoming more and more popular, which is great. I'm glad. Yeah, because it is needed. You know, I think of like these really popular parenting blogs and it's not really the parenting information that we see in research or that you are practicing in, in your you know office with the, the kids. It's it's not like the top 10, I don't know, high chairs. It's the behavior around it. It's a pa- behavior. It's the parent's behavior. It's what we've learned, what we need to unlearn. There's so much to it. So you, you mentioned something that's important, um, that compliance is something, a skill learned. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure like a little something went like you know clicked with like parents listening to this like what how do, how do yeah. we how do we go about that how do we cuz I just picture you know one of my kids and it's like it doesn't matter what you say <laughs> and yeah. he's 3 but it's I know that you have to repeat it and so a parent now who's like wait a second how do I how do I approach this what, what advice would you have for them Yeah and this is something um there's things we can do. And also, you know, having a psychologist coaching you, you know, mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks really makes a difference. Um, like one of the things I do is I do a bug in the ear model with families where I'm behind a one-way mirror or I'm watching them through, you know, Zoom or Teams. And I like have it in my ear to coach them through this. But essentially, we want to set our kids up mm-hmm. for success, right? So we want to mm-hmm. think about what commands can I give my child that they will listen to? And that might be as easy as like eating a snack that you know they're not going to resist and then offer, you know, and having them go get the snack. Oh, thank you so much for listening to mommy. That's the other thing. Praise. Uh, Don't praise them for go grabbing the snack. They were going to do that anyways. Praise them for listening to you and really make that like connection about like, I really love it that you heard what I said that like right now is the appropriate time for snack time. Um, And so really giving them opportunities and upping the bar. 
So making it from preferred to something a little bit harder, like putting that blue Lego on the yellow Lego, which they might not have done, but like teaching them through that. And then, um, and then generalizing that to life. But also I think with families we work on, like, do you need to be giving commands all the time? No one likes to be bossed around. And so being really, really smart about how we're giving commands and um, when we're giving commands so that when our kids hear like mom's telling me to do something, they know we mean business or dad's telling me to do something. We mean business um, and we need you to listen. And it's, you know, it's something that is being asked of them to do and they should do it. So really thinking through um, helping them be successful, really making success rewarding for them. Um, and then just being really thoughtful about when we are putting that expectation on them really makes a difference. I love that. I, you know, I think about also um, like asking a child to clean up their playroom. <laughs> and we, we might not ask, and I know <laughs> it triggers yep. a lot of parents because you know they're not going to do it. Nope. And and I think that it's it, we have to break it down. And I think you just now, like explaining like there's, a way to show them, I guess, the reward and the praise differently or, you know, so how do we, I, I, I think I'd like to talk about like consequences and also praise and reward because you just mentioned it. And I think some parents worry, like, am I praising them too much? Are they yeah. going to expect it? How, how, where's the balance? So how about we start with a child who's ignoring us <laughs> and, 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 and not cleaning, never, ever, like we do it every day. We repeat every single day to clean up their playroom or their play space and they're ignoring us. Do yeah. we implement consequences immediately? Do we praise or offer rewards for every little thing that they do because they picked up one toy? Like, where's the balance in that? Yeah, I love that because I think cleaning up a room is a challenge for most families. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I just think about myself if I walk into a playroom with a lot of toys everywhere as a grown adult with organizational capacities who've done this a million times before I'm still overwhelmed like all right yeah. where am I getting started and I'm like strategizing and like trying to knock stuff on Legos like it is a huge <laughs> thing um, in my head and I yeah, imagine true. that in a three-year-old or you know a four-year-old or even older children um, when we're like go clean your room that's so overwhelming for many kids who don't really have what we call the executive functioning to like plan and strategize and initiate that behavior. Um, and so I think about making, again, setting up kids for success. So what can we do that makes it developmentally appropriate? Maybe for a younger, like a two to three year old, we say, put that blue Lego in the red basket. And so then they're doing that and then, you know, and then we're helping them one at a time or for an older, maybe a four or five year old, we're saying, let's put all the Legos in the basket, right? Like, mm -hmm. so now it, it, we're meeting them at their level and we're teaching, we're teaching them how do we think through all this um, and how do we plan and how do we approach this? So I would first just pause and make sure the expectations we have are developmentally appropriate. And the language we're using to support them in meeting this expectation is appropriate. And I want to back up and talk a little bit about success. I often just hold in my head, success is like something they can do independently 80% of the time, like 70 to 80% of the time. You want a bit of a challenge, right? Because that's why you're there. You're helping them get better. But if they're only able to clean their room or their Legos 30% of the time, it's telling me it's too hard. And so we need to simplify something so that they can feel that success and feel, you know, the rush of accomplishment when they're able to clean whatever they're being asked to clean.
so we could clean a part of it and, and then ask them to finish off or do a certain part yeah. while we help them. So at least they've done their part and they've been successful at cleaning that area of the room, let's say. Right? It was yeah, that yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And this might look different for different um, kids, right? Like some kids need visuals to, you know, sort out what mm-hmm. goes where. And some kids need, you know, more of a schedule or bins, um, just different ways of doing things. And so th- there might be some problem solving um, around it, but thinking really, again, about how do we set them up for success? Knowing my child, mm-hmm. what does he or she need to be successful in doing this? I love that. It's such a positive way to look at it rather than like, I don't know, like three X's or (laughs) then you're out, you know, kind of thing. How do we set them up for success is such a beautiful way to connect with them and and to show them, I want you to succeed, you know, like, let's do this together rather Mm -hmm. than giving them this big uh, role of cleaning up the entire (laughs) room. And and then they fail every time. I get that. That's really such a beautiful way to see it. Um, so where do, I guess, rewards and, and yeah. the, the, what you just said is a bit of that praise is, is, the, is that where you want to stop it, you know, or, you know, how, how yeah. much do you celebrate once they clean their, their little space? Yeah. So I love praise. I think praise is one of the most helpful parenting tools. It has some myths and some bad reputation around it because I, I think, don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, and I think I it's know. just because there are some research, there is research out there that like, um about how we praise there's some wisdom around it right like just saying good job is like just blowing air in certain ways because it's not telling a kid anything like if your boss comes to your desk and says good job and walks on you're like for showing up or like submitting that report like what did I do and so I think there's like a lot of wisdom um around it but I think it's specific to this situation when I think about skills building I think praise and rewards are so good because kids might not feel as rewarded as we do for cleaning up that pile of toys. Like we look at it, it's clean, we feel good. They are still learning some skills. And so we serve as that kind of reinforcement until they're kind of able to more successfully accomplish it. It doesn't feel like such a hurdle. And they're able to um, just be more, when we're better at something, you know, it's easier for us to do and we, it gets easier and it gets more rewarding for us. So I think, um, really using that in skills building is great. So when they put that blue Lego in the bin, I am going to praise them and I'm going to praise them for listening. I'm going to praise them for, you know, cleaning up or for whatever skill I'm trying to build and make my praise really specific to that. Um, And then, yep. And so I do that. And then it's not forever. When they're 15, you're not going to have to, you know, praise them for every single Lego. And you don't have to give a reward. You taper off. Again, that's a success. If they're doing it 100% of the time, then you can kind of taper off some of your praise and acknowledgement. We all really like praise. We all like it when people acknowledge us. Even if we know we're doing a good job, it feels good for someone else to acknowledge that. And so our kids deserve it. Yeah. And just, yes, exactly. And even as adults, like you were saying, we like it. It feels good, right? I, I just the other day I told somebody like, oh, what, there was a uh, this uh, document that she handed in. And I was like, you did a really good job. Like, I love how you did this part. And she's like, oh, 
Thanks. That feels good. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah, yeah. And it's it does have a bad uh, reputation, <laughs> and I get it because there are different ways of doing it. I I think of like a child who scored, you know, like on the soccer field, and you could say like, you know, I noticed you've tried, you've been practicing really hard, and you finally yeah. got that goal, and I'm really proud of you. Versus like, you're the best player on that team, right? Exactly. <laughs> right? Like nobody, nobody can beat you, and you're just so good at this. Yeah. There's there, so there is a difference in the kind of praise or the type. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That process okay. praise is so important. So yeah, the process. I love that. Um, let's go back a little bit to the the four um, big problems that parents said they sure. had: the biting, hitting, yelling, and throwing things. Again, because I think of back, I think back to my kids, and I went through it with them. So I want parents to one understand that it's normal, and two perhaps have a little uh, a few tools in their their toolbox after this conversation. Um, yeah. Let's let's talk about the difference between a young child, a ten month old, and a four year old going through this. Would you approach it the same? way um and is this is hitting biting and all that like is that something you would go see uh, you know seek help with or you know let's uh, let's start with that <laughs> yeah aggression i think is i think safety is always my number one um priority mm. for both not just the child but also the pair right like i mm. just told a parent today it is never okay for someone to throw something at you doesn't mean if it's, yeah. it, it, the person throwing it as a grown adult or like you know your two-year-old running around like that's just not okay Um, and so, um, but it happens because kids are learning cause and effect, right? If I bite you, if I pull your hair, if I yell, you have a reaction. Sometimes that reaction gets me what I want or gets me out of having to do something I don't want. <laughs> Sometimes it's just like, get the attention, I get a hug, like there's a lot of reasons or they're just upset and you're acknowledging it. There's a lot of reasons to it. And so it's totally understandable, especially when they're really young um, and they don't have the language yet. They're still learning to recognize emotions and to express it in more helpful ways. So I think one is to start with that understanding and um, to deepen your own understanding of why that's happening. So uh, pausing mm -hmm. and noticing if there's a pattern is something I often ask parents. I can't remember remember half the things that happened last week. So I don't expect parents to remember anything. And so I asked them to, you know, jot it down on their fridge or whatever, you know, like they bit me twice or they threw toys in the evening, like starting to kind of see if there's any patterns from being kind of a scientist in your own home um, around your child. Yeah, I, I like doing that because I think there's a function to behaviors. Um, And then if it's happening a lot, then I would definitely go see help. And if it's happening, if tantrums and if aggressive behaviors are getting more intense and kids are fours getting into fives, another reason to go seek out help. Again, you don't need to be bit for three years before it's, you know, emergency situation to go get yeah. help. You can get it right away. And um, if you feel like this is something that you're constantly thinking about, like, is he going to throw something at me? Is he going to kick yeah. me now? Go, go yeah. get that help for a couple of sessions and, um, and stop worrying about it. So what happens with the younger ones? Let's say a 10 month old, are you, are you disciplining at that age? Are you, um, mm -hmm. are you ignoring it? You know, if, especially if it hurts. I remember my kids at some point they would like pinch like during nursing. Yeah. And I was like, ouch. <laughs> and then, and then like, you'll read sometimes that you should just ignore it, but you're trying not to have a response to it, but it hurts. Yeah. What should you do when they're very young? Yeah. I always say, keep yourself safe. Um, I think that's the number one thing. So if they're throwing toys, you can ignore and 
clean up the toys, right? So I just literally yeah. have parents. So if k- kids are hitting and kicking. I just have parents stand up and I do like, um, just like move around the room so they can't have access to my body while I am oh, doing no. what I do. Or if they're throwing things, I put it away. If they're biting, I remove that body part. If they're pulling my hair, I pull out my hair, tie it back. Prevention strategies are great. So, you know, you um, wear long sleeves, you put your hair back for a while, you do what you need um, to keep yourself safe. So that's my first thing. And that happens with siblings too, right? Like they will go after Mm -hmm. siblings sometimes or other kids and really thinking about how do we prevent. And I do think ignoring is helpful. Sometimes parents hear it and they're like, I don't want to ignore my kid. And I'm saying, no, we're not ignoring your child. We're ignoring a behavior. It's really, really different. Um, And what I mean by that is like a lot of kids get into these behaviors, not intentionally. Like I'm not trying to, they're not trying to hurt you or they're not trying to, you know, uh, bite you if they want that candy in the candy store. Like that's not a conscious choice for a lot of the kids when it gets started. But sometimes if we react in a certain way, it does become conscious. When I do X, mom will give me Y or I get out of Z. Um, And so we really want to prevent that by not giving into um, the thing and by by just really being selective with our attention. And so we're just looking for, and when I mean being selective, I don't mean ignoring behavior and being passive about it. I'm like actively looking for ways to um, praise them for any kind of they're quiet, they're crying softer. They took, you know, a, a longer pause to like help themselves calm down. I'm going to praise that. I'm going to acknowledge that. And I'm going to set my expectations. Once you sit down on the floor, mommy will give you a hug. And then I'm a broken record about it because being a broken record limits your attention to those behaviors while allowing you to hold those boundaries um, and letting them know what to move on. So I think it's okay to have some attention in there, which is really selective and it is consistent. They know if I do this, mommy's going to say why, you know, there's no getting out of this. This biting is never okay. She's always going to get out if I start to bite. <laughs> so being really consistent about it. And I think you said something really important there where we're ignoring the behavior because I'm thinking yeah. of a parent who might have a child who's having a lot of tantrums, maybe a two-year-old or a three-year-old. And again, that's developmentally appropriate and sure. not to the point where they think they need help, but it's happening in their home. And sometimes we view those tantrums as behavior. I don't know if I'm looking at it the wrong way, but I always see it as an emotion and that the emotion itself shouldn't be ignored. But you said ignore the behavior. So how would a tantrum play in? So let's say there's no hitting or biting or nothing, um, nothing aggressive. So, and it's just an emotion at that point. Do you still recommend to kind of ignore it a bit if they're repeating that because of that phrase of like, if I do X, then mommy does Y sort of thing. Or do you approach it differently when it's really about emotions? Yeah, sometimes I just think about a lot of, a majority of tantrums have emotions, right? There's a huge mm. energy to it. And that's why it bothers us so much. If you know, the, yes. uh, because, it, you know, emotions, they, they, they're translatable. And that's why it's helpful for us to keep calm, because then we can help <laughs> translate that to our kids. But going back to it, I think emotions are really important. And it's fine to acknowledge it. Like, you're really frustrated right now. But I rarely get into all the nitty gritties of like, oh, let me talk through it with you right now. When we're upset, when I'm upset, I cannot hear anything. Like, I am in another world. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like kind of like being at that peak of their yeah. emotions. Same thing with us. When when we're really mad and somebody tells us to calm down, it's the worst. Uh, uh, no, <laughs> I'm just going to get more mad at you. So exactly. So 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's not that we're ignoring them, but we're offering them what they need at that moment. It's just letting them know that we're there, I guess. And then yeah. waiting. Like you yeah. need to wait for them to come down, right? They're- yeah. And when they come down, you can spend a lot of time in motions. And I would do that. And I would try to capture it before, you know, the meltdown. Like, you know, sometimes you just know it's coming. Like, okay, I can tell you're getting more frustrated. Like, that's a really great time to like acknowledge those feelings too. And then like at the end, like, okay, I know, you know, I noticed you got really mad around this um, and talking about it when they are able to be able to talk more about it, um, but not in their emotions. So. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, you know, I, just for the parents that are listening and who have a younger child, I would even argue, not argue, but that say that even two or three years old, like a child who's two or three, I would still say, even though they might not understand everything, I would still say it to repeat it, right? To say, like, it's okay to be mad or whatever it is that you want to say, even if they're older. I think even if they don't understand the whole concept, I think that as they get older and they've they've heard the same phrases being repeated, then they get used to it. And I I think that's part of like developing emotion regulation skills or that emotional intelligence of having heard the different terms of emotions being used in my environment. Like, I know you're frustrated right now and that's okay, you know, but you still can't hit when you're frustrated. It's like hearing all those different like disappointment and frustration, like frustration. Those are really important vocabulary words to have. Um, yep. regard, you know, with regards to emotions. I agree. Um, so where does, where does like emotions and emotion regulation skills play into all this? We're talking about behavior. Yep. I'm, I'm thinking that there, there needs to be some, you know, when we think of certain situations like transitions or hearing no, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. the emotion regulation part too. Like I, I think, so how, how would those specific situations, what would you recommend during those situations? Yeah, I think Two things. First things first, try not to say no. Um, that's my thing. And I'm not saying don't say boundaries. I'm just saying like, how do we say this in a yes way? So instead of saying, no, you can't have dessert, you can say for dessert today or like, a, you know, ice cream, you can say, yes, we can have yeah. dessert, but uh, our dessert choices are X or Y. So like really thinking about if there's a trigger, like we all have our buttons, like they're they're gonna be our buttons so there are things we're sensitive to we're humans and being respectful of that and learning how to navigate that while holding boundaries because that's really important and consequences yep um being thoughtful about that is helpful and my big uh, my biggest thing is like if you know there are situations where you set you are prone to say no or like don't or stop and those negative kind of words um write a script for yourself and post-it note it there, right? Like if they're always asking for a dessert when you're in the kitchen, then write like, this is what I say. You read your script. You don't have to think about it in the moment when you're frazzled. Like set yourself up for success. Yeah. So that's my first thing is like, let's, let's try to avoid those language. And second part of it is like, think about skill building. Um, I think emotion regulation is, it's a muscle. It's like how we go to the gym and like the more reps we build or the miles we run or whatever we're doing and the stronger we get and the same with kids. And if we're mad, it is not a time to be like, this is a great time to observe. Like your heart is beating faster. Like it's not a good time to do that. Um, you can do that when they're starting to be a little bit frustrated, helping them notice signs because they're still somewhat calm. But I do this in other times of the day when they're perfectly, you know, happy and content. And so that means like bringing out a story and talking through the emotions. Or if you're watching a movie, make it a point to be like, oh, I'm noticing so-and-so, you know, stomping his feet. I think he's mad. And, and learning it. And it's okay to be mad like you said Cindy but it's about how do we express that we're mad right like punching a wall is not not okay when you're mad but 
if you need to go take some space, if you need to do other things to help yourself calm down, um, practicing mindfulness, like that's mm-hmm. a time to do it when they are, you know, when they're regulated and you make it a game, you can have them coach you. Okay, mommy's so mad because she, uh, you know, drop something on the floor, whatever. Um, what can I do? And then, you know, make it silly. And that's how they learn these skills. And when they are learning and they get practice when it's not so hard in moments where it's harder, they're able to pull out those tools and be more effective in using them. Mm. We had uh, a calm down corner when my kids were growing up and I, they would never use it. And I started using it because I had at that point a one, a three and a five-year-old. So I I would go to the calm down corner every once in a while. (laughs) And they, my, my middle child at that point just started going to the calm down corner on his own. And, and he, he, you know, he wasn't doing it every single time, but I noticed that he would just go there and and hang out sometimes and then i was able to start the like the conversation around like when he can go and he felt more comfortable but i think the modeling part is such an important part that we don't realize even little moments that we don't re- like like you said like this morning we, my my son dropped an egg on the floor <laughs> like you know not boiled <laughs> so it made a mess and it's just like saying out loud like oh that's so frustrating like i i just cleaned the floors last night you know like now i have to clean again and just saying it out loud and i love yeah. the fact of asking them to guide you i could have done that as well where it's like, what, sh- what should I do now? I'm re- I'm really frustrated because I have to clean it again. Just getting their guidance and then it won't feel as foreign when you say it to them next time. Yep, yep. Yeah. 100% I love that. Yeah. Do calm down corners work for, I- I'm assuming not all kids, but is that something recommended? Yeah, if that works, uh, calm down corners. Sometimes I just do calm down boxes or bags because oh. that's kind of translatable, right? You can kind of put it yeah. in your bag. They can bring it to school. Like, um, So whatever <laughs> works, I just tell parents like exactly what you're saying. Just because you have this awesome set of tools, doesn't one, doesn't know they they know how to use it. Two, they might not want to use it. Why do I have to do this, right? Like that thought. Mm-hmm. And so like, again, it goes back to that practice. Like, I think it's helpful for everyone. Like there are definitely things that help me calm down, whether it's like fidgeting or something or taking a deep breath. But I have to really um, be intentional about like knowing it's there and practicing in the same for our kids. And so we want to normalize it. We want it to be familiar. Um, something that's just kind of a natural part of this is what I do when I'm frustrated. And I do think it would be helpful for most kids. I'm thinking of a situation where a child might look like they're misbehaving, but there's an underlying issue. You know, maybe it's worry or anxiety around something. How do we, I'm thinking about that you use the scientist thing, right? So if we're taking notes and we're trying to understand the behavior yeah. and we notice it's when they have to get ready for school or go to grandma and grandpa's house, I don't know, let, let's just say certain situations. And we notice that, how do we approach that if we're noticing their behavior changes when they have to do certain things yeah. that they might be anxious around. I love that because, you know, like their whole purpose of that is because it's so overwhelming for them that like they kind of um, collapse. So I think about using coping strategies, right? Like how do we help manage our stress? I think about uh, like worries sometimes as like a thermometer or like our cup being filled and those moments are like big, you know, pouring rain into our cups or whatnot. And so I think about how do we help them learn how to empty it and have like, for example, that might be helpful thoughts, right? That might be even just acknowledging their feelings just because you know, they're worried doesn't mean they know they're worried. And what is worry like you know and being able to talk at this like worry bug exercise 
exercises out there where you can talk about having worry bugs and how that feels in their tummy and being able to recognize that early on and being able to express their thoughts. What about going out is really scary, you know, or going to school? Is it I'm afraid that my friends are going to make fun of me? Is it because I'm worried the teacher's going to call on me? Um, I think there's a lot of things that then we can unpack and move on from there. So just really thinking, continue being that scientist and then helping them develop the skills to kind of start pouring out some of those stress and some of those like worries from that cup of theirs that feels over, you know, overflowing in that moment um, in ahead of time as well. So. And with the same rule as the beginning that you mentioned at the start, would that apply in terms of functioning? So if a child is still going to daycare or still going to school, but clearly worried by, you know, by showing us through their behavior versus a child refusing to go to school or daycare and really acting out. Is that when we would seek help, even though, you know, we don't know if they'll have a diagnosis, but it's just about getting help. Yep. Yeah, I definitely, I think even then, like I've often created kind of separation plans for separation anxiety for a parent and with a teacher, I've called up schools before to make sure we're all on the same page and then having, you know, routines in place that really support kids and being able to cope with those big feelings that come up when separating from, you know, someone they love and their parents and caregivers. So um, definitely uh, is something that people can seek help for. Would the same apply for, or maybe you have tips for nighttime? I, I think this is a struggle for a lot of parents, <laughs> including mm-hmm. myself. You know, nighttime is something where, again, you you know that it's linked to not wanting to be in bed alone or in the dark, and it comes out as behavior because you're just like, it's the end of the day, I need you to go to bed. <laughs> yeah. And your child's like, there's no way you're leaving me here alone. And it becomes like this battle, and it becomes a behavior thing and a discipline thing when it shouldn't be, but it's so hard. It's such a hard moment for parents. How yeah. would we approach that? Yeah, I, I a lot of sleep issues come up, um, I do think going to your pediatrician first is helpful because sometimes there are medical underlying medical issues involved with sleep difficulties. And so just making sure we talk through it um, is helpful, but often it's behaviors. Like you're saying, it's big feelings or I still feel a lot of energy in my body. And that's when uh, psychologists can be helpful in creating like a behavior plan for you to try. And, and, and as I always tell families, you know, I might be a quote unquote expert on like child development, but at the end of the day, you are the expert on your child. And so that plan is going to take some tweaking, you know, and us putting our heads yeah. together and perfecting um, to make sure that it fits with your child. It fits with your family. You might have multiple kids and you cannot devote all your attention at night to one child. Um, and, you know, and like working around all of that. And so I definitely think, um, Psychologists do that a lot. Um, and there are specifically pediatric sleep psychologists who do this just for a living. It's just focus on sleep. Yeah. So yep. every parent should have one dedicated to their house. <laughs> I know. I know. I went on call. Okay. Yeah, they're not exactly. going to bed. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, three numbers on your phone and they're on the other line. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that'd I be nice. That. It's, it's so hard. Um, mm. I think you just mentioned settling down. Um, Again, that might come out as behavior, and it's, whether it's during the day or later in, in the evening. Is is that an emotion thing, and like a, an emotion regulation thing, where a child needs to learn how to calm down at some point because their body's filled with energy? Um, and how do we approach that situation where, again, sure. they're just running around jumping on couches or jumping off of the couch, and you're like, sit down, and they're, they're, they're just filled with energy. How do, we do, how do we approach that kind of behavior? Yeah, I think my first... Um, 
always go to recommendation is routine. So if you're going to bed at seven tonight and then 10 tomorrow and then 8.30, our bodies just are not built or wired for that, right? So at most, I always tell my families shift bedtimes by 15 to 20 minutes was the, the healthy expectation. So especially now as we're transitioning into the school year, if your child yes. is sleeping at 10, it's not going to be very much possible for them to sleep at eight tonight, you know, because their bodies just, our bodies don't shift and that's why we have jet lag. And so having a routine is helpful. Uh, and then building a routine to not just, uh, to the time is also helpful, right? So there are things we do that gets ourselves sleepy because in our brains, we associate that with bedtime. And so having like, we first take a bath and we put on our jammies and then we read a book, like having that order of events um, and making that a part of the routine is helpful just for kids to know like, all right, it's time for my bodies to calm down. We're just subconsciously telling them that. And so I think setting up those things is helpful. And then families will start to notice sometimes too, there are things that kids do like that may or help or not help them, such as like naps when they're taking naps or spending time outside or, you know, if they're having dessert at night, um, things like that, that mm. we just, as we get to know our child, we start to notice those patterns, but it's hard to notice them if you don't have a routine. So I'd first start there That's if true. you don't have one already. Yeah. That's really good advice. Yeah. And it's true. The routine makes a huge difference, especially in the summer. We see a difference in behavior. I find sometimes like we're skipping yeah. naps because it's a nice day. We're going to bed late because, you know, we're just staying up, like having yeah. fun with neighbors and stuff. And you see a difference in their behavior. So I think it's important for us to realize that and try to get back to the routine as much as possible. I know it's just yeah. for the summer, but yeah, yeah. it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, I think the last behavior that I wanted to chat about with you today um, is the impulsivity. Because again, it comes in and like, didn't you think about that? Like, I keep telling you to not do that. Or it could, like, sometimes it's even hard to recognize, is it defiance? Are they ignoring or is it impulsivity? What advice can you give to a parent to kind of realize that it is a child who's being impulsive rather than defiant? And and Mm -hmm. what can we do to help them build that skill? Yeah, I think impulsivity... We all, um, attention span is something that we built. So I think first really understanding that, again, this is something that works, but often it also comes with a cluster of other symptoms, right? Like is kids who are very impulsive uh, might also be very hyperactive. So they're having a hard time sitting in their chairs when their peers might be able to do it or they're fidgeting or they're blurting out answers. Those are impulsivity or they're, you know, grabbing for things. You're like plating food on and the food isn't even on the plate and they're already grabbing yes. at it. Um, those are all signs of impulsivity. There's things we can do to help them um, wait, learn to wait. Again, that's practice. Um, and you can, one, practice waiting for a certain amount of time with a timer. And then after the timer goes off, that's a little bit more structured. But there's other things we can do, like in play, holding on to something. And you're you're filling in the spaces for them when I'm doing this. Like I'm talking to them. I'm helping them be able to distract themselves, right? That's a strategy as we learn to wait. So I'm teaching those strategies to them subconsciously. And usually for impulsivity, I think it's helpful to work again with, you know, a professional. And I think mm-hmm. I just wanted to pause for a moment to say that not all child therapists and child psychologists are the same. Um, not everyone is 
the age range we're talking about and a lot of child psychologists are not as familiar with the younger kids Mm -hmm. um many are trained in more kind of talk therapy approaches of like let's talk through our feelings which I will let you know it is not very helpful when they're twos Mm -hmm. threes fours fives because they cannot hold it I even my even precocious seven and eight year olds sometimes struggle because cognitively that's not what they're at and so mm-hmm. I personally like behavior treatments where parents are a huge components of it so I'm kind of teaching parents the skills I use to help kids learn to wait or to l- learn to listen and then you get to go home try it out tell me where the hiccups are and we get to work through that um, but because kids learn um, through that like repetition and the behavior and so that's why behavior therapy is more helpful for younger kids and all the other concerns that we're talking about well, as they get older then they're you know usually a better a candidate for more talk-based therapies to process through things but at younger ages behavior therapy is a lot more evidence-based and effective um so I would think about that and then if it's impulsivity is getting in the way of daily life um I would go talk with their pediatrician kids do you know, ADHD, it's a big profile, a part of the profile in a lot of kids with ADHD is that impulsivity. And so um, even if your child doesn't have ADHD, sometimes getting the therapies that kids with ADHD go through to learn those skills, right? You don't need a diagnosis. Um, exactly. Diagnosis is just helpful for billing, to be honest, for your insurance coverage. That's where I really spend my time thinking about diagnosis is for that billing. But at the end of the day, all we really want to do is understand our child, you know, their strengths, their weaknesses. Why do they do these things that I can't quite wrap my head around? And what do I do about it? Like, I think as parents, that's the thing we care most about rather than a label. And is how do we understand and help our child um, and, and seek someone out to talk about that is helpful sometimes. What if a parent has already begun seeing a therapist for their child and now they're, I don't know, four or five weeks into it and haven't noticed any difference. Is it too early to notice a difference? Or, you know, how long should they wait before they say, well, maybe this person in particular wasn't the best one for our family? And you know what I mean? Like, what what sort yeah. of timeline should they be looking at? Yeah. What are signs that they need to maybe switch? Yeah. I would just say, you know, timelines are hard because kids that might be experiencing stressors or there's other things going on that changes timelines for every child, like their developmental levels. But I think when I think about a good fit of a therapist is one, I believe we're all child therapy. Parents should be a, a huge component. Sometimes I ask parents what their kids are up to in therapy and they can't give me an answer. And for me, I'm like, Oh, then it's really hard to tell. Like, um, because there's no magic in one hour a week with a therapist. It's really about how do we use that to impact every other hour in the day. Um, and so if we don't know, it's really hard to help kids be able to translate what they're processing or what they're learning in therapy to other aspects of their life. And that's what all we want, right, is to support them. And so I would think one, like, do you know what's going on in that four weeks that has been happening? Um, being able to talk with a therapist about it, I really appreciate conversations with my um, patients when they're like, I'm not sure this is working, or I'm really nervous about getting this assessment from you or whatever, because I, I really value those, um, those feelings. They're valid and they impact treatment and they, you know, this is your lives here and your child's life. And I want to be able to support you. And I hope that you can find a therapist who do feel comfortable with you bringing up your hard feelings and thoughts and not taking it personally um, and being able to explore fit together. Um, 
Mm-hmm. I think that flexibility, especially, you know, this goes on another tangent, but, you know, a lot of therapies are built for a certain demographic and most people don't fit, fit in that demographic. And so having a therapist who knows how to tailor it to your family you know, the number of kids, your cultural background, what your parenting values are, I think it's really important. So um, I would focus less on that progress at the four week mark, I would focus more about how do I feel about having this person as part of my team in helping my child? Do I feel like we are teammates? And I feel like we can learn to tackle this thing together. If that and if not, then really thinking about will that can we make that shift to being on the same team together? Um, and if not, maybe it is time to think about another therapist. I'm curious from your point of view, though, you just got me curious about something. <laughs> but now when you're working with a family, I'm yeah. sure that you could, you could see when the work is being done at home, right? Because like you said, that one hour is nothing, really, not Mm -hmm. nothing, but they need to do the work at home. Are you able to tell the difference between a family who's doing the hard work (laughs) at home versus the, yeah. A hundred percent. Families come in and they're like, okay, how soon can you make my child, you know, not have a tantrum? And we have to explore that a lot. And I'm like, well, first, you know, I'm not treating your child. It doesn't matter if your child listens to me. And never have tantrums with me because I don't get to go home with you. Um, And then the second part of that is like, it's how hard, you know, you're able to learn these skills to support your child. And so I have had families go through the same course of treatment with like starting out with the same amount of like intensity in their tantrums, maybe three weeks and they're uh, three months and they're done. And then some families are like six months and they're still like really struggling. And that's okay too. Like you don't have to be that three month. Um, family because you might have other things going on. You might be navigating the move or you're dealing with, you know, life stressors or other things, other children. You have your life too. There's other components. Um, but just recognizing that how much you pour into therapy, you get on the receiving end and just be open with your therapist about that because yeah. sometimes it's better to wait a few months um, and then find a good time to target it. But your therapist should be able to support you in finding that like, optimal moments um for having some therapy work done and i like that you're really stressing the the time and that it shouldn't be about the time because every child is different and even if you think about like starting a new workout at the gym or you haven't been there in three years (laughs) let's say (laughs) two years with the pandemic and then you go back you're like oh this is really hard yeah (laughs) and then you try really hard and then it's like three months into it and you're like nothing has changed but then like the fourth month is where you really Mm -hmm. see the difference Mm -hmm. i guess it's the same thing like you just don't know what the amount of months are or weeks or whatever it is with your own child but we have to be consistent with the work that we're yeah. doing with them and whatever you're suggesting because we won't see the results. Yeah. And I want to stress something that I tell a lot of families is when you're doing the right things, tantrums will get worse before they get better. And just hold that in your head. Yeah. So think about it. If a child is like, let's say classic example, they're crying 10 minutes to get ice cream um, and you're not giving it to them. Um, because you're learning to be selective. I'm holding my boundaries. I'm doing everything, you know, the, the literature, the therapist, whoever told yeah. you to do, they're going to cry for 15 minutes. They're going to cry for 20 yeah. minutes because they're going to see like, how long do I cry before mom gives me that ice cream? And that's when you hold on because it's the worst time ever. <laughs> and you feel really bad on the inside sometimes, but you got to tell yourself I'm a success because then they're going to learn. <laughs> Even if I cry 20 and 30 minutes, that ice cream is not coming until like after dinner or whenever. And they'll stop crying because they're learning crying is not an effective way to get ice cream. Maybe I should politely ask for it. Um, 
And so just knowing that and don't give in because if you get in at the 30 minute mark, for example, what they learn is I have the ability to cry 30 minutes, maybe even 45. So the next time you're going to have to hold on even longer, we call this the <laughs> extinction burst. Um, but like it's a, tantrums will get worse before they get better. It doesn't, it means they're doing the right thing. So, yeah. Mm. And I, I think to end our conversation also, the parent has a, a huge role. Like if not, yeah. I, I think that's a, a misconception, not a misconception, but like you said, they come sometimes and they're like, how do you, how do you end tantrums like tomorrow? Like, how do I, yeah. do <laughs> or I yesterday to, to make sure, yeah, or yesterday, like, so I just, I just, they have to end today. I get that. And I, I get that, you know, I, I've been in the same boat with my kids and it's not easy, but it's, it's also for me, what I learned as a parent is that there was a lot of unlearning and learning on my end as a, as a, yeah. as a mom, you know, like how was I raised? How were emotions perceived mm-hmm. in my own home mm-hmm. when I was growing up? And then how was I viewing their emotions or getting triggered by certain things that I hadn't yeah. recognized. And so I had to go to therapy myself and that's what helped me parent my child. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the parents please, we play a big it's role. Huge. In this. And it's complex because, you know, um, we have our own histories, right. And uh, we have our own experiences. We have values that may or may not match all the other caregivers values and what we're hearing on Instagram and other places. And we have to figure that out and the feelings that come with it. Like there's a lot of work to be done and parents have the harder jobs because like as a therapist, I only get that one hour, right? And it's contained. And I think your kid is adorable and sweet and I really adore them, but it's not the same love that a parent has um, with their child. And so that emotional energy is going to feel different for someone else and for you. And it's okay that like you need that learning curve and to get support on your own. I love that you brought that up, Cindy. Mm. Yeah, I love that. One last thing, turtle time to calm down. What is that? I saw that on your feed and I thought that maybe it would be a a really good uh, last tip for parents that are listening. Yeah, I love different mindfulness tricks. I think uh, mindfulness, um, there's so much literature out there uh, on how we calm our bodies and deep breaths and really grounding our mind and how that's great for us generally for stress, anxiety, um, with our big feelings and kids benefit from that except sometimes it's really abstract for kids. So I love posting a little bit on different strategies to help it become a bit more tangible, a bit more concrete. And so turtle time to calm down is just like imagining that you are a turtle whenever you have those big feelings and knowing that you can close your eyes and kind of like pull yourself in your arms and your head and your legs into your shell and to practice taking that deep breath um, and really being able to check in with your body when you're in that safe space because then we bring our safe space with us, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, that calm down corner or our bedroom. We can close our eyes and we can decorate the inside. We can be really creative with this. Um, And then you get to like peek out your head when you're ready out of your shell, assess like, is this safe? Can I come back? Am I ready? And it's okay not to be ready. If you need to, you can go back in, you can relax your muscles, you can do whatever you need and keep repeating that until you feel like I'm in a space where I feel safe enough to stick out my limbs, my head, um, and to rejoin um, the world outside me. So yeah, it's a fun exercise. Even just hearing you explain it, it, it felt soothing to know that, like you said, your safe space is you. It it, it could yeah. be you and and not having yeah. to look for something external. I love it. Thank you for everything that you do and everything that you share with us on Instagram. Um, where can listeners find you or learn from you? Yeah. Um, well, on Instagram, I'm at Parenting the Unexpected um, because I want to help parents 
parent, the unexpected moments. So um, you can find me there and some tips on my IG as well. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I, we definitely have to have another chat. <laughs> yes. Yes. Soon. So thanks, thanks Cindy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, to rate it and to leave a review. Uh, And you can follow us on Instagram at curious underscore neuron. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.